I'm seven years old. I'm sitting in the back seat. Why? I'm sitting right behind my dad, who's at the wheel of the car. And I peer around his left ear and I look out to see nothing. Just snow coming, barreling down. You can't see an inch in front of you. I look over to the left. We're on a big hill, hill that went up all the way to my grandma's house. And if you've ever seen Pennsylvania, you know, it's beautiful. It's windy. It's got hills and beautiful things, but it's also treacherous. They I don't know. Back then, I don't think they believed in guardrails. They just believed in prayer. I'm not sure. But I remember being terrified, looking over to my left and seeing just a cliff and then over to my right and seeing a cliff on either side. And I didn't have the luxury of being terrified for long because that was not a position that I was willing to stay in. Instead, I needed to do something. So I invented this little game that I would have my little imaginary steering wheel and my little imaginary brake and my gas pedal. And I would pretend to be driving or co-piloting the car right behind my dad. Now, when I would turn the wheel, sometimes the wheel would turn, or I think I would save us and I would sl slam on the brakes or, or step on the gas. But I, you know, in the, and, and most of the time that worked, except in the winter when it was unpredictable that we would slide or where we would go. And so the winter times, even though I loved them, would terrify me every time my dad came and picked us up for the weekend. I don't think at the time I knew necessarily that he was drunk. I don't think that's something that I would have said. Oh yeah, my dad's drunk. I think I just, now, of course, I know that's what was going on. But at the time, I just thought he was weird or something's kind of off or there's something wrong with him. But in order to survive it, I just tried to control it somehow. How about you? <laughs> I got an email from one of our listeners to the podcast that said they wanted to talk about their adult alcoholic father and how they are going to handle it and what they should do and what are the best practices and how do I navigate this alcoholic addicted parent and actually protect my peace, my sanity at the same time. I'm going to give you some really important information today that is going to help you know exactly what to do step-by-step uh, step when you're dealing with an alcoholic or addicted parent. I'm Heidi Rain, by the way. Welcome home. Welcome back. If you're new here, we're so glad you found us. If you want more help and you want a deeper dive, you want a personalized consultation, you want to meet with me personally, you can always go over to HeidiRain.com and learn more. So that was when I was younger, my first experience with trying to control the situation. At least that's what I remember. What stands out most in my mind was the car episodes, because that's when I really noticed that he wasn't all there the most, right? Um, but later on in life, it became a little more obvious, and I was able to put words to it and, and know, hey, he's drunk. And, and so my attempts to control uh, or fix got a little bit more savvy and intense as the years went on. 
So I remember all throughout my childhood trying to find bottles of alcohol going through the house. My dad was was interesting where he he'd have hiding spots, you know, and one of his hiding spots was behind the toilet tank, inside the toilet tank, he put the vodka or like buried in a bag of kitty litter, you know. I mean, he'd find all the spots where he thought nobody would would look. And I remember as a as a child, one of my tactics to control and fix my dad was to dump out the alcohol. I would go around and find those hiding spots and I would pour out the alcohol and sometimes I'd put the bottle back and put it back empty because you know, a, a 10 year old, 11 year old, 12 year olds are rational that they think, oh, well, he's going to see that's empty and know that I did that, that I emptied it out and I'm onto him and I'm going to create embarrassment in him or shame in him so that he finally gets the point and sees what he's doing to me so that he'll stop doing what he's doing. But really in reality, now I can look back at that and think he just must've thought he drank it and just got a new one. You know, there's, there's nothing that there was no epiphany moment that I had imagined in my mind. And, and that kind of resonated after a while when I would do that time after time and bottle after bottle, and it always seemed to get refilled. You know, I remember another time when, uh, I just, I had a, one of the things we used to love to do, uh, my brothers and, and friends of ours, we would sit around and play music all the time. Somebody always had a guitar in my house and we would make up songs. And when my dad was sober, he was an amazing, excellent guitar player, just like one of the best ever. And so he he really instilled that in us, this music, love for music and things like this. So we would invite friends over. And I remember one time we were uh, all sitting around in a circle and everybody had something like a tambourine or drum and very musical family. And we were making up songs and just kind of laughing and howling and having the best time. And my dad had been off into bed and it was kind of later in the evening and he had drank. He, he was a functioning alcoholic. So he would, you know, save his drinking for when he came home after a work day. And then he would drink so much that he would go up and pass out. Well, we're, we're in this circle and everybody's sitting around and, and we're like jamming and having the best time and everybody's laughing and having a great time and dad's upstairs. And all of a sudden I hear it. I hear this the familiar sound of dad slamming into a wall because he's up and he's moving and he doesn't have any balance. And I'm like, he's coming downstairs. And sure enough, I heard him start to like fumble about and knock stuff over and start to come downstairs and he was like falling into the walls. But, you know, so that was already bad enough. So I'm looking at my friends and I'm like, oh, shit. like here he comes. They're going to see him drunk. You know, when you're a kid, you try to like shield yourself from this with your friends. You don't really want them to know what's going on. And I was very successful at, at only showing the parts of my life that I wanted people to see. And I guess I was getting braver or something that I decided to just have these friends over <laughs> one night. But anyway, he comes downstairs and the worst of it isn't the slamming into walls. Part of the worst of it is my dad used to sleep in like the tightest bikini underwear. Okay. Like, and he had a like blue and red and all these different bikini underwears. And listen, when I tell you the terror, like not only is he going to come downstairs drunk, but he's going to come downstairs in these underwear and make a total ass of himself and embarrass the hell out of me. My brother's with me. It's his friends too. And I'm just like making, I'm just looking at him like, you know, cause we were war buddies. Right. So I'm just looking at him. I'm like, what the, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Because in that situation, by controlling 
wasn't going to work. Like I couldn't like, Hey, everybody like look over here, you know, they're doing a magic trick. Bunny's coming down the stairs and I'm like poofing smoke over here, trying to get the attention off of it. I just was mortified. I was at a loss because my controlling ways weren't going to work. I could not stop the situation. If I intervened, if I went up and tried to get him and take him back up, I mean, just, it was a nightmare. But anyway, sure enough, he comes down in his tight little blue underwear and he falls down in the middle of the circle with all the, I mean, just, just, I think I was probably in my, I was a teenager at this point. Okay. So, you know, it's, I'm just like dead inside. I'm thinking that's it. I died. Nobody's going to, you know, there's no way to come back from this. And he, he comes in and he's like, what are you kids doing? And he tries to pick up a guitar and he's like falling over and he's got like one half naked leg. Like, you know, it just, it, it was terrifying. But I looked at my brother and I'm like, help. And my brother, who was a comedian, okay, that's his coping mechanism was to like to laugh it off or whatever, picks up the guitar, doesn't miss a beat and makes up a whole song about blue underwear in the middle of the night. Blue undies in the middle of the night and makes a whole song. And other friends are now drumming. Somebody's got the tambourine going. Somebody's harmonizing. And we made up a whole song about it. And I just remember feeling so grateful, like, oh my God, somebody else is going to like rescue me out of this situation. It still didn't make it any better, but it's certainly like my friends were laughing. We made a joke. My dad was laughing too. And he was like, yeah, blue undies. He grabbed the guitar. He's like, blue undies. You know, so, oh God, it was a, a nightmare. My dad at that time thought that we were laughing with him and having a good time with him. But really, you know, everybody was kind of laughing, which is really sad if you think about it. But it was the only way we knew how not to die of embarrassment that day, that night. So, you know, I think about all the mental gymnastics and tricks we do as kids to try to navigate this or lessen the impact or make it better. So the first tip I have for you is actually stop trying to control and fix this thing. Stop trying to control and fix this thing. And I know that tip sounds, well, if I stop doing that, where's my purpose in life? If I stop doing that, what's really going to, they're going to die. If I stop doing that, nobody else is going to do it. I know all the stories, believe me, I've been doing this work a very long time. And I understand not just because I've heard the stories and helped the people who told me the stories, but I've lived the stories myself. There are ways that you can help, but it's not by controlling and fixing it yourself. Definitely, I'm going to tell you exactly how to help your loved one, your parent, but it's not by controlling and fixing. So as I grew up, I still didn't get this message. This message was not clear in my mind that I had no control. I could not fix my dad's alcoholism, but it didn't stop me. You know, I just, like I said, I just would say, you know what? I got to level up. The next morning after that embarrassing thing went down with my dad, I was just still reeling. Like, how could he do that? How could he ruin my social status? You know what I mean? How could he like fall down and not realize he's in his freaking underwear, slobbed, like just gross, just like playing guitar drunk with his drunk guitar face. You know, I'm like, how could he not realize the damage that he's doing, the collateral damage that he's doing, but he thinks he's having fun. He thinks he's the center of attention. He thinks everybody's having a great time. I was pissed. So I woke up that next morning and I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I'm just strategizing. And I saw my dad used to drink and then put all the beer cans in one big, like uh paper bag, you know, you got them in paper bags. 
So I went over and I collected every single beer can that I could that he all put away and didn't put. I think my stepmom actually collected the beer cans and put them. I don't think that he did. I think he just left them everywhere. You now you'd find a, a beer can with like a cigarette out in it and one with like a cigarette hanging on it and, you know, all these beer cans all over. And uh, just they smell disgusting because when you picked them up, and sometimes when you would try to dump out the beer can, the cigarette juice would fall down your hands and it just, it was so gross. So I got, I gathered up all those cans and I was like, you know what? You're going to get it. You're, you're going to get it this time. I'm tired of you embarrassing me and me through this and making me have to pick up your piece and pick up the pieces and explain you, you know, I just was sick of it. So I gathered up all the beer cans and right down the steps where he came down and made an ass of himself. I made a beer tower. Honey, I'm going to tell you what right now. I lined up all the beer cans at the bottom of the steps like a house of beer because I thought surely if he sees how tall this bastard is, okay, how tall this thing is, he's going to have a change of heart and realize, whoa, something went awry, something's amiss. I can't, I can't do this to him anymore. And so he came downstairs in the morning and basically what happened was it was a tall beer tower, like a house of cards, but a house of beer cans. And basically it was so early in the morning that he actually just knocked it over and got pissed. Did that? Who lined up? I'm going to work. I don't know. You know, it, it backfired. It didn't work. And guess who cleaned up the beer cans that he kicked all over the place in the morning when he fell into them? Me. And then I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have lined them up. I made him feel bad about himself. Now I've now I've embarrassed him. Oh God, that wasn't a good strategy. And I think I walked around and marinated in that shame for at least a week. How dare I try to line those up? He's sober today, especially when he wakes up and he's sober the next day. You know, when he makes, when he does this like terrible thing the night before, you know, it makes everybody petrified, uh, you know, uh, where is he? You're, I'm, I'm seven years old and I'm in the backseat of my mom's car at Jimmy's place, looking for him, waiting for him to come out of the bar so they can fight. And I'm thinking then the next day he's sober and he's like sober dad. And he's like, yay. And I don't want to say anything to hurt his feelings. It's such a weird place to be in as a, as a child, as a teenager, and even as an adult. And so what I realized, what I could have done in that situation was, protected myself. Uh, I could have, I could have, you know, gotten up out of that situation, removed myself. I could have taken it upon myself to share my vulnerability with my friends. If they are my true friends and share with them and say, man, that's really, that's really embarrassing. I could have just admitted it. I could have just said, this is so embarrassing. Instead of going into fix it mode, cover it up mode and control it mode. I could have just been authentic and vulnerable in the moment and said, man, this is weird. You know, this is terrible. I could have confided in somebody, but I didn't know as a kid that I could do that. I thought that, you know, I'd be judged. People wouldn't understand. It would make me less cool or I wouldn't be popular or I'd be laughed at or whatever. And I didn't realize half of my classmates were experiencing the same thing. Probably could have been great to talk to somebody or at least have some kind of outlet, but I didn't have a parent to be able to go to and talk about it. You know, my, my parents were both had their own stuff in their own ways and nobody was asking me how I was feeling, what was going on. They were both inflicting pain in their own special way. I didn't have a place. And I wanted to go to my grandma and talk about my dad. That's her son. She doesn't want to hear that. You know, well, as he's working, he's trying his best. He's, you know, it's like, so I didn't have a place to be an outlet. So what I'm telling you is you need an outlet to be able to talk about this impact on you. 
kids need an outlet to be able to talk about what's going on. Most kids, if you ask them how this is affecting them, are going to say, I'm fine. I'm fine. And not because they are fine, but because they, in their mind, they think they need to be fine. So they're not broken. You know, think about that for a minute. If I'm not fine, then what does that mean? That means I'm hurting. I'm in trouble. My parents don't love me. My parents are jacked up. No, nobody wants to admit any of that stuff. So we have to be a safe place where, where we can we can come to terms with, you know, what's happening. Stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to control it. I have one more story that maybe you can relate to, okay, about fixing and controlling and see, see yourself in the story. Can you relate to this? Another time I tried to fix it and control it was finally, I was living in Los Angeles. I was a business consultant. I was working in, you know, and, uh, you know, achieving, doing all the things, you know, climbing all the ladders. And I got a phone call from my stepmom that my dad was going to go into treatment. Now this is the call I'd waited for my whole entire life. I guess she threatened that she was going to call his work and tell his work. And work was the thing that my dad was like, I work can't know about this. So he, you know, he was like, okay, well, I'll go to treatment. So I'm thinking, I, I am elated. I am like, oh my God, I'm going to have the dad I always wanted. I am actually 32 at this time, 33. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is the best day of my life. This is the most important thing in my life that could ever happen. I had all this other stuff going on, but none of that mattered because this is the thing I was waiting for my whole life, for my dad to be well, for us to be a happy family. I'm going to have the dad I always wanted. So you know what I did? I put on my cape and, and I flew to the rescue and I went home to where my dad was living. And at the time he was living in Westover, West Virginia. And so I just remember, you know, I'm like superhero mode, you know, I've got the wonder, we've got the wonder woman cuffs on, you know, I had all my stuff ready to go. I was super excited. And as soon as my dad checked out, checked into treatment, I had my wonder woman cuffs here. If you're listening to the podcast, you can't see them, but they're, they're never far. Okay. So I had my wonder woman cuffs on and, and I land and I, and I walk up the steps and my dad lived, my dad was a coal miner. He worked his way up in the coal mines and was a supervisor. So he earned a pretty good living. I think at the time, you know, 80 to a hundred thousand a year in West Virginia is not a bad gig, you know, especially at that, you know, for him, he was a simple liver. He didn't want a lot of extravagant stuff or need an extravagant lifestyle, but he lived in a house that was a ramshackle shickety shack of a shicker. Okay. And throughout my life, there was some nice houses and then he moved into a trailer for a while and then he went to a nicer house. And it's just like, he never owned a home in his life. He just rented and went from place to place. And this one was on the top of a hill in Westover, West Virginia. And it was a shit show, man. You know, it was, you know, my stepmom, I love her. Uh, I'm not going to out her of who she is, but you know, she was, she was a hoarder, which I believe absolutely to be true. And, and the house was like flea market fabulous. Now, look, I love a good thrift. I love a good find. But when I walked into that house, there were nicotine stains all over the carpet and, and burn holes and the lazy boy where he would sit and cigarette holes and all this jazz. And, you know, just, just like nicotine all over the walls. There was wood paneling everywhere and just rickety, rockety, shickety, shackety shit, you know, all over the place. And like plastic flowers with dust and baskets of bullshit, you know, just it was horrifying. 15 cats, you know, a, a, a dog that's too big for the house. Uh, just nothing worked. 
you know, like the cabinets are hanging off, you know, uh, there just, there's a tablecloth on something with a doily, but it's a shit show stained tablecloth. It's like, why, why, what's the point of that? You know? So anyway, I was a hot, I was hot to trot at that time. I was an international business consultant and I was making pretty good cash. So I was like, I'm going to come in here and fix this shit. I'm going to throw my money around. I am going to spend whatever it takes. I enlisted my sister who was well ready to do it because she was a fixer too. And we went to work on that house. We ripped up carpets, ripped up linoleum, you know, in the bathroom was like linoleum with like half ripped up and dunk and dirt underneath of it. We ripped it all up. We, we couldn't tear down the paneling and, and re, you know, but we painted it. Okay. We painted the cabinets, screwed them back on. I went and bought new furniture. We bought new carpets. Uh, I went out and uh, did the sanded down the railing and got rid of all the junkyard shit that was in front of the house. Like there was a blue sled that was like hauling trash flea market finds up the hill. And, you know, it just looked like, you know, it wasn't tires, but it was close. You know what I mean? Like, so, so I took out that old couch, you know, that had cigarette and bitter burns in it and nicotine and put it outside. And I did what we do in West Virginia. I burned it. I set it on fire. Okay. I mean, look, I went to work and then I sat back on the patio that I'd freshly painted and bought new wicker furniture. And I looked around and I felt so proud of myself. I was like, oh my God, this is it. Because in my mind as a fixer with my parent, I thought, well, he can't come home to the same environment. He's got to come home to a clean place. He's got to be able to like love his environment, feel fresh and new. Hey, it's a restart. It's a change of scenery. It's a, it, it, if I can't move him geographically, I can move him in his mind. And I'd put, you know, it just, it was nice. When I tell you we did a good job, we did a good job. And the best part about it, it smelled like pine saw. I mean, it just was clean. It was, it was hard on all cylinders. And I felt so proud of myself. I was like, this is my best work, but I didn't stop there. I looked up meetings. I figured out where he could go. I had a little calendar on the refrigerator with all the different meeting schedules and where, you know, the AA meetings. And I mean, listen, I was proud. Okay. And he got home, he got home, you know, and he came out of treatment and the next morning, you know, he came home late or whatever. And I didn't really talk to him that much. And when I saw him, when he first came out, he was like, he was happy to see me, but he was like really awkward, which I didn't expect. I didn't expect he was nervous. And then I, and then I realized now I know I didn't realize at the time actually, but now I realized, cause I know this now when people get sober, that stuff they were medicating shows up. He was anxious. He was like, you know, uncomfortable and alcohol was the solution for all that anxiety that he had. But anyway, the next day I'm sitting outside, you know, I'm smoking a cigarette at the time I'm sitting outside and feeling so proud of myself. And, and my dad pulls up and gets out of the car he had to go to the gas station to wash his car and he gets out of the car. And, you know, I knew by how he stepped out of that car, he was drunk. Cause he, 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 you know, he would kind of lightly stumble out or kind of fart around when he would get out of the car and like, you know, shut the door and look like he didn't know what he was doing. And there were different stages of awareness getting out of the car, but I could tell this was like a three beer phenomenon, four beer. And as an alcoholic doesn't drink and then they drink again. Do you ever notice that when you look at somebody who's an alcoholic and you're like, how are they drunk? I only saw them drink two beers and now they're annihilated. Where, how did that happen? I mean, right. That's, isn't that true? But that's how it is. It goes from zero to 60 and they're like, oh, they must be down a whiskey or whatever. You have no idea. Vodka because it doesn't smell, you know? So anyway, I was 
deflated. It was like some, I had pumped myself up to the point of feeling like so good about all the work that I did that when he got out of the car drunk, I just, all the oxygen went out of my life. All the air went out and I just felt deflated, flat, numb, empty, hopeless. What do I do now? That was my big chance. And instead of really understanding what addiction was and what it did and looking at as a, as a relapse, like, uh Oh, you know, Hey, all this means not an, uh Oh, but it's like, Oh shit, you need to go right back to treatment. I didn't understand that at the time. So I thought, Hey, I didn't do something right. Or B, he needs to try harder tomorrow. And I, you know, I have lots of videos on here, lots of podcasts about why we don't take it one day at a time with an addict and alcoholic and wait and see. And I'll tell that story again another time and I'll tell it all the time because it's such an important story about why we don't just say, let's try to do better tomorrow. All right. But, you know, I think at that point, that was the last straw, you know, of all the fixing and all the controlling in my life in that moment with no air, totally empty, totally defeated. I looked around and I thought, never again. That's it. I'm done. I'm not going to try to fix it anymore. I'm not going to try to do anything anymore. And I, and I left the situation and I flew back to Los Angeles and I just went on about my business and let it go. And it wasn't like a detached with love. It was like, uh, fuck off. I, 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 I tried everything and I was mad and it took me a while. So step number one, is coming to a breaking point for yourself where you realize you do not need to keep going in. You do not need to keep fixing this. You do not need to keep trying to, trying to rescue, trying to save, trying to do all that. Because ultimately the truth is no matter what you do, clean the house, empty the bottles, take the notes, take the, take the videos of them, take the videos of them doing the thing, you know, lining the bottles, pumping them out, uh, rationing the medication, you know, whatever you're doing is not going to work. None of it. Absolutely none of it. So if that's true, if what you're doing is not going to work, what else would you be doing with your time if you decided you weren't going to spend it in that way anymore? How much time would you get back in your life? What would you do with that time? These are things I want you to consider. Okay. So let's go, let's go forward. You can pause this podcast here or this video here and just focus on this one thing I've said, or this is going to be a much longer session with you today. You can keep listening and listen for more things that you need to do on the road to dealing with your alcoholic parent. I was just the first one. Isn't that crazy? That's just the first one, but it's the one, it's the most important thing. Actually, that was one and two because controlling and fixing can be two totally different things, but you, I've given you plenty of examples. Okay. The third thing that you need to do and know something that's very important you need to know and do when you're dealing with an alcoholic parent is you need to understand the difference between an ultimatum and a boundary. They are not the same thing. When you have a, when you're a child of an addict or an alcoholic, you don't really know how to set a boundary because it's usually just an ultimatum. It's like, I remember setting ultimatums so many times. Okay. Christmas was one of those times, even as a, a young adult, where that became like my thing, right? Is, is this, I thought I was setting a boundary, but it wasn't. And I'll, I'll explain the difference. So Christmas time would come. 
I would have my own place, uh, you know, and I would invite my dad over for Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever holiday it is. Okay. And I'll just, you know what, let's do, let's do Thanksgiving. Okay. For one example, and it was the first Thanksgiving that I had hosted and I was living in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at the time. My dad was in West Virginia still, and he drove all the way out. And I was so excited because I was like, I'm going to host Thanksgiving. And of course, as a child, I imagined as a child of an alcoholic, but as an adult, this is my chance to shine, to show my dad how adult I am, how great it is. And, you know, I can like make a meal for him and really give him a taste of the good life and what a, what a proper dinner table set is and, and what it looks like when you're a real family and you set it up, you know, and I had all these visions in my mind about, and I did that all the time, fantasized about what a, a good family dinner would be and how it would be amazing. And so I wanted him to fit into that picture. And I told him, I said, Hey dad, look, you're going to come out here for Thanksgiving, but you can't drink at my house. You can't drink at my house. You know, this is, this is a, this is a, a place where, um, you know, we want to have a beautiful family, real legitimate Christmas or Thanksgiving. We don't want any shenanigans. So you're not, you can't drink and you really can't get drunk. Okay. On Thanksgiving, you really can't get drunk because this is my house and this is the family experience that I want to have. And then it was kind of like saying, you know, and Hey, by the way, if you do drink, uh, at, at my house on Thanksgiving, uh, I'm going to be devastated. I'm going to be so upset. I'm going to be livid. I'm going to be whatever. Okay. Fill in the blank. Here's my feelings that I'm going to have. If you do this at the time, I thought I was setting a boundary, but I wasn't because what I was saying to him is, Hey, please don't do this. Please be sober. Because if you don't do this, I'm going to hurt. I'm going to be hurt inside. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to convince you or manipulate you into behaving a certain way, because I'm going to guilt you into it by painting the picture of how bad I'm going to feel if you fuck up, if you mess up. Okay. So, Hey dad, don't drink on Thanksgiving because if you do, you're going to ruin my Thanksgiving. You're going to ruin my work. You're going to ruin everything that I put into this. Okay. That's what I would say. So what happened? My dad came home at Thanksgiving and at the time we had little VHS cameras and, uh, you know, the, the, the thing in and you carried them around. Uh, and, and sure enough, I, we had the dinner and, and, and my dad drank, brought his own alcohol, of course, and, and got annihilated and totally shit faced. And instead of holding that boundary, I decided I'm going to film him. I'm going to put a video camera on him and I'm going to show him what, how ridiculous he is and how terrible it is. And, and I'm gonna show him tomorrow because I told him not to drink on Thanksgiving and he did. And now he's hurt me. And I want evidence that he's hurting me. I want to prove it. I want him to see it. So I videoed him and he's like talking about how upset he is that he's drunk and how he feels so bad that he's drinking and he can't get this monkey off of his back and he feels terrible. And he feels, you know, he's, he's professing how, in the, in the video, as he's drunk, he's professing how bad he feels about being drunk in the video and on and on. And so the next day I show it to him, you know, and just bottom line is nothing, absolutely nothing changed with me, my feelings about it, how hurt I was, and absolutely nothing changed with him other than he apologized in the morning. Rain, that's what he called me my whole life. I'm so sorry. He left me a note. He wrote me a note and said, I'm so sorry. You know, I did that. I, I realized. And then he said, please don't show that video to anybody. 
please don't ever show that video. Because really he was just thinking, I don't want anybody to know, you know, he was really in protecting his self mode, which is not his fault because addiction by definition is a narcissistic behavior, right? It's a self-obsession. It's a, it's a protection. It's addiction. It's like it hijacks and wants to protect it. So it's like, you know, it's narcissistic. It doesn't care. It just really wants to make sure you're not going to show anybody or talk about it again, sweep it under the rug. And as I got older, I realized, okay, every time I ask him not to drink or ruin Christmas or ruin the holidays, he does it anyway. So I'm, I got to do something different to protect myself, myself from this scenario. And, you know, everybody in a family doesn't feel the same way about what they need to protect to, to protect themselves. I have a, such a beautiful sister. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this about her. I'm not saying who she is, but she's a beautiful soul. And she has an endless amount of, of ability to sit with somebody who's who they are and let them be who they are. And, and she loves them anyway, no matter what, because she, she doesn't get too affected by it. Okay. So she would be the person I would say, well, how do you want to handle this? And she would be a person who says, well, I'm just going to be there. If they're drunk, I'll be there. And if they're not drunk, I'll be there. She would be there no matter what. Right. I have another sibling who would say, I don't want to be with that person until they're sober period. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Now, which one's right or wrong? Neither one. It's just a personal preference of how you feel that you can handle this situation and go through it and what you think is going to work for you or not work for you. Okay. So my boundary was, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to be around you. But when you're drunk, I am endlessly, bottomlessly affected and infected. And I, I, I'm trying to recover from my codependency of controlling and fixing and taking things personally. So when you drink, if I hear a, you know, that's my sign that when you're at a certain point, I will leave the scenario. I'm not going to ask you not to drink. I'm not going to ask you not to be, but when you are drinking, I'm going to remove myself from that situation. And I'm going to tell you, well, that's my cue. And there were many times where I'd be traveling on the road and I you know, would live all over the place and I'd fly home and, and I'd put all lots of time and money and to fly home and resources. And I would land and I would get to him and he'd already be drunk and I'd have to turn around leave and go, you know, and do that. And that sucked, but I couldn't, I couldn't say, if I would say, oh, I told you not to be drunk and now you are drunk and I flew all this way and then sit with him while he's drunk and try to fix him and counsel him, then that's my fault because I'm not honoring my boundary. So I had to honor that. I had to respect that myself and say, leave. And it's hard to do. When you walk in, one time I went to somebody's house and I was just tired of the way that they, they were like narcissistically abusive, like all about themselves, very controlling and manipulative. And I remember one time thinking, if this person keeps acting this way, my boundary is stop expecting them to behave differently and leave and get the hell out of Dodge when they behave that way. And one time I had made plans and drove four hours in the middle of a snowstorm, kind of reminiscent of when I was seven in the backseat of my dad's car, ripped steering wheel, wheel and snow coming down. I mean, it just was a terrible, terrible. It took me seven hours to get there instead of four. And as soon as I landed, the question was, well, where the hell have you been? Nice that you're finally here. Now we can all eat. We've been waiting on you the whole time. You almost ruined the whole thing because you're late. And you know what I did? I got my little behind up and I went back in my car and I drove home seven more hours because I was done at a limit, at a point 
tolerating, expecting other people to change, setting ultimatums and protecting myself from the people who were being the people who they are, instead of expecting them to be who I wanted them to be for them, I let them be who they are. And then I go, I don't need to be here for that. So I'm going to leave. And I did. Not easy. But boy, did I feel better because I knew I wasn't in self-betrayal. I wasn't sitting at the table eating with my my that person being horrible to me, or I wasn't looking at my dad. One time I went, I went and visited my dad and he was, you know, saying he was sober or whatever. And we're having a conversation on the porch swing and in my grandma's house. And I looked down and all of a sudden he's like starting to pass out. He's starting to nod out or pass out, you know, and he's you could tell that drunk thing where they're high, you know, that thing where they're going like this. And I looked and I just looked at him, you know, he, he passed out and I, and I just, man, I'm just looking at him and he's sitting there and he's like kind of small, you know, and he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's passed out and he's got no, no drinks on him, you know, but I, I scan down, I go past the, the button down shirt and the, you know, and the tacky pants that he's wearing. He always tried to look nice. And I, I go down to his, to his pant leg when I look in his sock is a flask. When I just look at the outline of that flask in his sock and I thought, Jesus, man, sad. When I got in my car, got a Montero at the time, Mitsubishi Montero, I love that thing. I got in my car and I drove away and I cried and I thought, damn it, when's he going to be able to be sober enough for me to be here? When, when will he realize that I flew on an airplane or drove in my car all this time? I did all the things and I show up and he can't even be sober for me. It's not about me. He can't be sober for me. He's, he can't be sober for himself. He can't be sober for anybody. So, you know, just really coming to that understanding is such a godsend for you. And that's what I wish for you is that you, you realize how to set a boundary instead of an ultimatum. Now I have in my addiction course on my website, um, over at HeidiRain.com, there is an addiction course. It is, it is survival bundle. And not only does it have 30 hours of coaching content with calls and people and direct advice and strategic advice, it also has a boundary course in there, how to set and hold boundaries with an addict and alcoholic. And you could purchase that bundle and have everything you need access at your fingertips to a library of resources that I created just for you in the situation that you're in. So I encourage you to go grab that as soon as you can, HeidiRain.com. So learning how to set and hold boundaries is crucial. Okay. The next thing is once you do that, okay, then you have to, this is all in one thing. So this is more like three things or four things. When you set a boundary, you have to have the courage to follow through and actually continually follow through over and over again. So if you're a daughter, an adult daughter of an al alcoholic father, the first thing you need to do is decide how you want to experience this thing. What is the boundary? What is the bottom line? What are you available for? And what are you unavailable for? Now, if you purchase that boundary course, you're going to see all these questions in that course. The third thing that you can do after you stop trying to fix the control, know the difference between ultimatums and boundaries, the third thing you can do is encourage treatment. You never want to stop encouraging treatment to somebody. You never want to stop because sometimes people are like a combination lock and they go to treatment one time and it doesn't work and they complain. And I have lots of podcasts, episodes and videos here of why they say treatment doesn't work and what to do instead and all that jazz, but always encourage treatment. Treatment is always a good idea for somebody who's struggling with something. Just like if I have cancer, treatment is always a good idea. 
Now, are there multiple forms of treatment? Sure. But you always want to be encouraging treatment and recovery to your loved one. If they ask you, hey, I'm so tired of doing this. What should I do? You say, I just encourage treatment. Hey, I encourage you to get into treatment. When I finally realized this with my father and I would set and hold my boundaries and I would say, hey, dad, I'm leaving. And then the next day he would apologize. Hey, Heidi, I know you left last night because I was drunk or whatever. Or I'm sorry. You know, he would he would come to terms with that. Then I would say to him instead of going, yeah, lecturing, you, sh you should do this instead. You should da, 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 you know, or blaming. Yeah, you really hurt me or guilting. Yeah, you should know. But, you know, all the things. I looked at my dad and say, yeah, treatment is available. And I really want to encourage you to go into treatment. Well, I can't go into treatment, whatever, whatever. But this is what I encourage you to do. Okay. And that's it. That's my standard advice from now on is don't, is encourage somebody to treatment. Now, if they're willing to go to treatment, you might have to help them figure that out. I do that all day long. I do strategic interventions with couples, parents, all, and I have that conversation for you with your person about your boundaries after we figure them out and what the next step is and what, what I encourage for treatment. I've had hundreds of conversations like that. And I know you might be thinking right now, well, that would never work. They would never get on the phone. Yes, they do. And yes, it can. They get on the phone, they get on the call, they might get mad, they might leave, they might go, but it works. I'm telling you it works. I have a very high success rate, okay? Go to HeidiRain.com if you want to learn more about that. Heidi, why are you pitching your services? You're just supposed to be helping. You're just supposed to be talking. Now, this isn't you. This is the voice of some other person that's listening to this. Why are you, why can't you just, why do you keep pitching your services? Because they help. Because they're good. Because they work. Because listening to a podcast is one thing. Watching a video is one thing. But having me actually in your life, coming alongside of you, don't be scared. Don't be scared. That's actually the thing that helps. That's actually the thing that turns the key and gets the motor running, okay? All right, the last thing, and probably I would say one of the most important things that you can do when you are dealing with an addict or an alcoholic outside of all those things I've said, which are good nuggets of wisdom, is know the impact of this alcoholic on you. There is a whole, unfortunately, underground information that nobody's really talking about, except few, few of us are talking about it, which is what happens when you grow up in, a, in an alcoholic home. When you are an adult child of an alcoholic, what happens? Now I'm looking around for my book. I should really keep it here. I wrote a book called What's Wrong With Me. That is the impact of growing up with an addict or an alcoholic or otherwise narcissistic or toxic person in your life. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on my website at Heidi Rain. This actually, this book, was written from the perspective of an inner child from an adult. Adult wrote it from the perspective of a child, an inner child who grew up in that environment. It's easy to read. You can relate to it. And basically what you do is read it and go, oh my God, I, I, can, I can relate to this. This is how I affected me. Because it's just the biggest thing in dealing with adult children of alcoholics is denial. We think we escaped. We think we got out. We're like, oh, it doesn't matter. I, I'm out of here now. You know, hey, I'm, I'm successful. And then we think we're okay until A, we have to deal with that parent again, or B, we are in an intimate relationship and we're repeating patterns. We're controlling and fixing other people again. We're back at it. So you kind of know how this affected you. Also, you need to know the shrapnel that's been left behind. 
There are six core pieces of shrapnel that are left behind from dealing with a, with an addict or an alcoholic growing up with it or dealing with it. Um, I have a toxic relationship recovery course for adult children of alcoholics and addicts or spouses that have been injured by this person mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all the ways so that you can heal, but you have to get insight. You have to know how you've been impacted so that you can actually heal, move on and put it behind you. No longer are you a hostage to the impact that's been left behind. So you got to know there's this whole movement of adult children, adult children. So I'm in the process right now. I, I invented a process of healing called the rapid detachment method. And I've been practicing it now for, I guess, four years consistently. I created it. I invented it when I was working inside of a drug and alcohol treatment center. And I tested it out on thousands of addicts and alcoholics clients that came through that needed to release trauma. And then I, then I worked with clients who are in relationships with addicts and alcoholics or grew up that way. And this probably is the thing, the feedback I've gotten from clients, from other uh, clinicians, you know, clinicians, psychologists, people that I respect and work with say that this process has really been the thing that has changed, absolutely changed their lives. And I'm in the process of putting it into a workbook and a book will be released soon so that you can learn how to do this rapid detachment method over and over again on everybody that you know, so that you can be free psychologically and emotionally for the rest of your life. So, you know, when I say uh, you know, the thing is like, I know so much about this topic because I've dedicated my life to understanding it, studying it and helping people through it. You know, it, I, it's just like, you know, when you go to anybody who's a specialist, they just, they don't know how to do everything, but they know how to do this one thing better than anybody else. And maybe not better than anybody else, but better than most people. And this is my thing. This is the thing that I, I know how to do. I know the impact. I know how to walk you through it. So I know it can be tough sometimes to be vulnerable and open yourself up to the possibility of having some support. Even I feel that way where I'm like, I got this. I get, you know, I got my Wonder Woman cuffs on. I can handle this. But I, even in my own life, I'm at the point where I'm like, I need, I need to let people support me too. You know, I need more support in this way, or this is what I'm looking for. So it's not a bad thing, you know, to think, okay, I've gotten far in my life. I've gotten to this point. How can I take this all the way home? And I can help you do that. So go over to HeidiRain.com. I hope this has been helpful for you today. I hope you've gotten something out of it. If, if you can, will you tell, tell us what it is? Leave a comment, leave a like, or, or share the video because it helps us help more people. It helps this video get seen more in the hands of more people. We're dealing with such an age of information overload, but this information is really important. This, this information, I believe, is the information that will change lives. This information, I believe, in, in the right hands of the people who are motivated to change and break cycles of dysfunction for good is gold. And so I want, I want to help those people who are ready to break the cycles and break free for good. All right. In the meantime, I love you so much. I will see you next week with another episode. Until then, take excellent care of yourself. And if you're ready to dive in, go over to HeidiRain.com. Love you so much. See you really soon. Bye.